Um, you should have a, a screen if I'm screen sharing properly here, giving you my uh, professional affiliations and my website address and so on, where you can go and find other things. And that you'll note on the handout, there's a uh, I curate quite a lot of YouTube playlists, and I've created a, a YouTube playlist on the argument for desire uh, that will uh, tie in with what we're doing tonight. Anyway, I've got a lot of material to get through, so I will uh, power on uh, in defence of arguments from desire. As with many uh, theistic arguments, um, there's really no such thing as th uh, the cosmological argument, the design argument, and so on. I've just had a little notice coming up saying my internet connection is unstable, so let me know if we're, we're not okay. Um, but the argument from desire, so-called, uh, is really a family uh, of arguments. I want to bring out uh, the breadth uh, and the variety uh, of this uh, argument. Uh, Richard Dawkins, you've got to quote Dawkins, haven't you? Uh, notes in The God Delusion that it's often said that there is a God-shaped gap uh, in the brain, or I've heard most people say the heart, uh, which needs to be filled. And it was indeed uh, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who uh, actually said that we contain an infinite abyss that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, by God himself. And the, the God-shaped uh, hole in the heart uh, quote is, uh, as far as I can tell, a misattribution uh, to Pascal. Dawkins has a sort of rejoinder to Pascal on this. He poses the rhetorical question, could it be that God clutters up a gap that we'd be better off filling with something else? Uh, science, perhaps, or art, or human friendship, or humanism, love of this life in the real world, you know, giving no credence to other lives beyond the grave, and so on. But I think this response is too shallow a response to Pascal, uh, because it is in the very appreciation of things like science and art and friendship and so on, that people tend to discover an unsatisfied longing for something deeper and more and beyond those uh, worldly uh, satisfactions. So I've got a, a quick video clip that I hope will play for you that I thought was interesting on, on this theme uh, about an American... Uh, quarterback Tom Brady. It's quite poignant, uh, really, isn't it? Uh, Charles Taylor, uh, his uh, recent uh, tome of a book, uh, A Secular Age, I think you can read A Secular Age, is being framed by this issue of longing for the transcendent and the, the argument for desire. Taylor describes there uh, what he calls a powerful intuition, that in some activity or condition lies a fullness, a richness, some sort of state that is uh, where life is more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. Perhaps this sense of fullness, he says, is something we just catch glimpses of from afar. Sometimes there'll be moments of experienced fullness, of joy and fulfilment when we feel ourselves there, and such mystical experiences which would be a subject of positive arguments from religious experience, perhaps, he says, can help define a direction to our lives. But then he notes that the, the sense of orientation also has a negative slope, where we experience, above all, a distance, an absence, a sense of exile, what he calls the nostalgia for something transcendent. 
and he returns to this theme towards the end of A Secular Age, noting, uh, age, noting again the, the need for meaning, a desire for eternity, uh, and says that culturally speaking, although there are strong incentives to remain within the bounds of the human domain, yet the sense that there is something more presses uh, in upon us, he says. So the argument from desire, I think, can appeal to uh, quite a broad range of what you might call existentially relevant innate desires. For example, a few here. C.S. Lewis, uh, we'll talk about uh, more momentarily, uh, counted uh, the irrepressible thirst for immortality as among the contents of what he called natural desire. Uh, Taylor, we've looked at, our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil and chaos, he talks about as well. Or Roger Scruton, uh, the ancient and irrad eradicable yearnings for something else, for a homecoming to our true community. He argues that beauty and art and the, the natural world points us beyond this world to what he calls a kingdom of ends in which our immortal longings are finally answered. Or the agnostic philosopher Anthony O'Hare speaking of the perfection we long for in some other world. Or the atheist Christopher Hitchens, interestingly, commenting on his favourite song, uh, Stevie Winwood's Higher Love, uh, said, I admit it has evangelical overtones, but I do long for a higher love. Or atheist Bruce Scheiman, I, I want to believe, he says, that the reason we finite beings reach out to an ineffable and unfathomable absolute with a capital is because we are imago deo, in the image of God. I want to believe that our timeless quest for goodness and transcendence has its omega point in God. Even though I cannot believe in God, I still feel the need for God. So Lewis, who's become uh, sort of central to this uh, discussion of this argument, um, famously described his quest to understand what he called an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Uh, a mystical experience he at first called romantic, and later on uh, coined uh, the, using the term joy for this experience, uh, which uh, writers in the, the German romantic tradition in particular uh, use this word, and I'm probably going to massacre this, sorry, uh, Zeimsucht, uh, sort of transcendental uh, dental longing and nostalgia. Uh, joy appears to be an innate or natural human desire that's spontaneously occasioned by, but not satisfied by, various worldly triggers. And those triggers are clearly somewhat person-relative, person-dependent, although they generally have to do with, with beauty, with what the Romantics called the sublime. Uh, and innate desires to nailed down a definition, because philosophers love definition. Um, and innate or natural desires are, are their persistently reoccurring, uh, behaviour-shaping desires for anticipated coherent ends that properly function members of a natural kind, say human beings, are either born with or with a natural tendency to spontaneously develop. Um, that are consequently widespread, although not necessarily universal, that doesn't need to be the claim, I think. They're widespread regardless of historical era, or age, or gender, or class, or education, and background, and so on. 
and therefore tend to be enshrined in, say, linguistically recognised states of both satisfaction and deprivation, and to manifest in cross-cultural artistic uh, themes and representations. Uh, so Scorbin, uh, Corbin Scott Carnell, for example, in his uh, book Bright Shadow of Reality, Spiritual Longing in C.S. Lewis, um, a very interesting book from the, the year I was born, in 1974, uh, says that Seinzucht may be said to represent just as much as a, ba- a basic theme in literature uh, as love. Um, some examples. Consider, say, this passage from a book that Lewis himself loved, uh, The Wind uh, in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Uh, a bird piped up suddenly and was still, and a light breeze sprung up and set the reeds and bulrushes rustling. Rat, who was in the stern of the boat, while Mole sculled, sat up suddenly and listened with a passionate intentness. Mole, who with gentle strokes was just keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at him with curiosity. "'It's gone,' sighed the rat, sinking back into his seat again. "'So beautiful and strange and new. Since it was to end so soon, I almost wish I'd never heard it, for it roused a longing in me that is pain, and nothing seems worth while but just to hear that sound once more.' and go on listening to it forever. That sort of both describes, and perhaps for many people evokes, what Lewis was talking about when he talked about the sense of, of joy. Or a passage that, again, I think does both uh, describe and evoke uh, from Lewis's own oeuvre, from um, the end of uh, The Last Battle, towards the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So joy isn't a desire for the worldly objects that occasion or trigger it, inasmuch as those objects themselves don't satisfy the longing that they occasion. Thus, Lewis argued that we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness, no natural object will satisfy. And Lewis made, I think, very effective use of this experiential point of connection uh, in various presentations of the argument from desire, AFD, uh, most of which take joy as their starting point. And I've put up some of his uh, most famous works that use this here, from The Pilgrim's Regress... Uh, surprised by joy, of course, mere Christianity, and uh, his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. Now, of course, Lewis wasn't the first to explore the argument from desire. You can see roots of this in the works of Augustine in the Confessions, Pascal, who we mentioned, Thomas Chalmers on natural theology, or indeed G.K. Chesterton, who may have been an influence 
on Lewis, uh, who we know read The Everlasting Man. And Lewis wasn't the only scholar of his day to use this argument. You can look at the works of uh, the Thomistic philosopher Jacques Maritain in Approaches to God, or C.E.M. Jode, and Leslie Weatherhead as well. But it is due to Lewis's influence that an increasing number of contemporary scholars have become interested in arguments from desire, uh, being discussed by folks like John Haldane and Robert Hoyler and Peter Kreft and Alistair McGrath and so on. Talking of McGrath, uh, he reckons that the argument from desire, he says, is not really an argument for the existence of God in the strict sense of the term. We'd need to expand Lewis's point to include the declaration that God either is or is an essential condition for the satisfaction of the natural human desire for transcendent fulfilment. Haldane and Hoyler make the same move, and I think I agree, uh, although that said some formulations of the argument can invoke God much more directly uh, than others. Now in his book, uh, recent book, The Intellectual World of C.S. Lewis, McGrath says that Lewis's argument is not an argument in the strict sense of the term. It is better understood as a reflection on the best explanation of a, a resonance of intuitive plausibilities, an affirmation of the intellectual capaciousness of the Christian faith, to explain what we observe in the world around us and what we experience within us, rather than a proof for the existence of God. While some have misunderstood Lewis's approach as a deductive argument for the existence of God. It's clearly an abductive or inferential argument, primarily for the existence of heaven or another world, and only secondarily for the existence of God. Now, setting aside McGrath's conflation of argument with deductive proof, um, his attempt to shoehorn the argument from desire into an abductive or inferential argument I think, tells us more about McGrath's uh, apologetic predilections than Lewis's intentions with the argument. It seems to me plain that Lewis just presents this argument in a whole variety of contexts and in a variety of argumentative modes, if you like. Uh, that there are uh, many, at least eight or so, uh, cogent arguments, I think, from desire that you could say jointly constitute a cumulative argument from desire, but you can cash this argument out in a whole host of different cogent ways. So, number one, the prima facie uh, argument from desire, that is the, the on the face of things argument from desire. Uh, it was Samuel Alexander's Gifford Lectures on Space, Time and Deity that introduced Lewis to a distinction between uh, the enjoyment and the contemplation of an experience. Uh, Lewis, more memorably later, would uh, rework this distinction as the difference between looking at and looking along a beam of light, say. Um, if you talk in uh, phenomenological terms, in the what is it like to experience something terms of enjoying joy, it is, well, an inherently goal-directed, teleological experience. It, it points beyond itself to a transcendent, innately desirable something more, something beyond that's worth desiring. But contemplating that experience of joy leads further away from a naturalistic or a pantheistic uh, answer to this desire and towards theism. 
um, as Douglas Grothaus concludes, the argument uh, renders credible some sort of transcendent source of human satisfaction beyond the material world, and so points to a theistic worldview because it's based on the claim that humans desire transcendent reality that can satisfy the human person. Um, and I think that points to a personal or, uh, reality rather than a sub-personal uh, reality that would be able to do that. But at least I think I would argue that the the phenomenology of joy is uh, taking it at face value, is to look along it towards the transcendent other that is worth desiring. Lewis says, as soon as you've grasped this distinction between looking at and looking along, it raises a question. You get one experience of a thing when you look along it, and perhaps another when you look at it. Uh, particularly he's thinking of when people look at experiences and try to sort of reductively explain them away. He asks, which is the true or valid experience? It's been come to be taken for granted that the, the external reductive account of a thing somehow refutes or debunks the account that's given from the inside of the experience. Uh, for example, all these moral ideas, which look so transcendental and beautiful from the inside, says the wisecrack, are really only a mass of biological instincts and inherited taboos. Perhaps you'll discuss this in next week's uh, seminar. No one plays the game the other way round by replying, if you'll only step inside, the things that look to you like instincts and taboos and so on will suddenly reveal their real and transcendental nature. Well, it, it, this is an interesting discussion in uh, Lewis's article, um, Meditation in a Toolshed, because I think contemporary epistemology is much more open to playing the game, as he, he says, the other way round. Think of uh, particularly reformed epistemology. Or Richard Swinburne talking about the uh, the principle of rationality called the principle of credulity, uh, i.e. that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be in the epistemic sense, unless and until we have evidence that we're mistaken. That kind of trust is the initial rational position rather than scepticism. Uh, Swinburne argues that if you say the contrary, i.e. never trust appearances until it's proven that they're reliable, then you'll never have any beliefs at all. For what would show that appearances are reliable, except more appearances. And if you can't trust appearances as such, you can't trust these new ones either, and so on. So, as Swinburne explains, what he means by the epistemic sense in the principle of credulity, he says, describes how we are inclined to believe that things are. And he notes the principle applies to appearances beside those gathered by the ordinary senses, he says that, for example, the principle applies to relying on your own memory, i.e. what you seem to recall having heard someone say. And, of course, memory isn't a sensory or perceptual faculty. So it seems to be a very general epistemic principle, uh, affirming the priority of trust in how we find ourselves inclined by experience to believe that things are. So you would apply that principle to the the uh, the inside experience of joy uh, phenomenologically and say, well, I will take this prima facie as at really being uh, pointed towards something else and until someone can show otherwise. Um, Plantinga taking a slightly different approach to the same sort of prima facie argument in Warranted Christian Belief uh, notes that perhaps this restlessness without God uh, this transcendental desire 
leads to belief in God and perhaps God's designed us in this way to impel us to try to get in touch with him. And so the process leading to the formation of the beliefs in question are directed to the truth and the relevant module of the design plan of, of how our cognitive system works has as its purpose the production of true belief, even if it goes by way of perception of beauty or even wish fulfilment or what have you. Um, that actually you can put the, the burden of proof on the sceptic, according to Plantinga as well. But going beyond just the sort of prima facie reality here, the abductive, uh, to uh, satisfy McGrath version of the argument, um, for example, just one way of putting it, Victor Reppert, who of course famously wrote the little book on uh, C.S. Lewis's dangerous idea on the argument from rationality, but here talking about the argument from desire, he, uh, Rappert notes that on Christian theism, God's intention in creating humans is to fit them for eternity in God's presence. As such, it stands to reason that we should find ourselves dissatisfied with worldly satisfactions. So let's put the, the likelihood that we should long for something more, the transcendent for heaven, for God, given that the Christian theism is true at quite high, say 0.9. I wouldn't say such desires couldn't possibly arise in an atheistic world, but how likely would they be to arise in such a world? So long as the answer is less likely than in a theistic world, then the presence of these desires confirms theism. So let's say if we don't know whether theism's true or not, the likelihood of these desires should arise is 0.7. Plugging those values into Bayes' theorem, we go from a 0.5 likelihood of theism being true to a 0.643 likelihood that theism's true. So the argument from desire definitely confirms theism, just taking it on itself. Uh, the typical uh, comeback, I think, to such an abductive argument uh, is the sort of reductivism that, that Lewis was uh, hedging against. Uh, some sort of uh, naturalistic, evolutionary, psychological account of why you should expect us to have these transcendent longings on an atheistic view of things. Uh, some sort of um, uh, evolutionary psychological just-so story, as uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, famously called them uh, after the, uh, the Roger Kipling stories. Such a, a naturalistic evolutionary psychological account, NEP account, is offered by the atheist Eric Weinenberg. Uh, but his account lacks explanatory scope, because it only engages with two features of joy, the restlessness it induces and the, the sort of nebulousness and mysteriousness of its object. Uh, he suggests that the somewhat nebulous nature of joy might be an advantage if joy arose within some population of creatures. Joy's lack of a clear intentional object might have led early humans down various false paths in trying to satisfy that desire, such as the pursuit of sex, power, an adventure, uh, and that those things might then have direct fitness uh, advantages that would be selected for. But this account also lacks explanatory power, because Weilenberg only suggests that this restlessness might be advantageous if joy arose. Uh, he says, early humans favoured with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart might have outcompeted other humans who were naturally more sedentary and complacent. Well, equally, it 
might be the case that early humans afflicted with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart would be outcompeted by humans free from the burdens of existential ennui. Or uh, Weilenberg's false path hypothesis, you could also argue, lacks explanatory simplicity compared to the hypothesis that the direct fitnesses and advantages of sex, power and adventure are completely self-sufficient uh, unto themselves. Indeed, when our uh, hypothetical ancestors realised that neither sex nor power nor adventure satisfy this joy-desire, wouldn't that lessen the significance of those activities in their minds, thereby constituting an evolutionary disadvantage compared to creatures lacking that joy-desire? Um, so I don't uh, buy this sort of reductive uh, account as being, um, in any sense, uh, better or equal to the, the theistic explanation. Indeed, crucially, Weilenberg offers no explanation for the appearance of joy in the gene pool. He only offers an explanation for its natural selection, should it appear. As Rappert says, natural desires that are unfulfillable on Earth is precisely what you should expect from the point of view of theism. I seriously doubt we can do this from the point of view of naturalism, even if a halfway decent-looking evolutionary explanation of how such desires could arise were forthcoming from the naturalist, and it doesn't seem to be. Even Gregory Basham, who I debated uh, the argument with uh, in the book that he edited, uh, conceded that these possible explanations are, he said, highly conjectural. Uh, and against naturalistic evolutionary psychology in general, that's a very controversial field anyway. Uh, philosopher of science Stephen Downs says that there's a broad consensus among philosophers of science that evolutionary psychology is a deeply flawed enterprise. Uh, NEP, un unlike evolution per se, presupposes naturalism as well. It's a naturalistic evolutionary psychological explanation and I think there are sufficient problems with naturalism to call that into question. To appeal to NEP to defeat the abductive argument from desire is therefore actually an argument that begs the question. Uh, and indeed, NEP presupposes the neo-Darwinian account of evolution by variation and natural selection, and that's an account that Lewis doubted and which is the subject of much current debate, of course. I mean, even uh, atheist Michael Roos recently noted, this is very interesting, he said... We have today a vocal anti-Darwinian party, consisting, somewhat surprisingly, not only of the evangelical Christians of the American South, but some of today's most eminent atheist philosophers. Philosophers like Jerry Fodor, or uh, Fodor and uh, his co-writer Massimo Patelli Palamarani, of the book uh, What Darwin Got Wrong, or the atheist philosopher Mary Midgley in her book Are You an, Illu an Illusion? Or the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel in his book Mind and Cosmos? So third way of putting the argument, um, inductively, inductive arguments from desire, um, suggested by this quote from Mere Christianity by Lewis, uh, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfactions for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
So one might put that argument more syllogistically, uh, something like this. Uh, one, humans have an innate desire for the transcendent, or for God, or one or more states of being for which God is a necessary precondition. That two, most innate human desires are such that there exists some object capable of satisfying them. That's the inductive bit. Conclusion, therefore, the transcendent stroke God probably exists. Now, even if we set aside the distinction between innate and non-innate desires, uh, that the argument from desire hinges on sometimes, at least, even setting aside that distinction, it actually seems to me to be a sort of sound heuristic principle of, of rationality, rule of thumb, to give every desire the presumption of having a fulfilment until you've got reason for doubting it, until, say, conceptual analysis or evidence actually shows otherwise. Fourth way of putting it, uh, what I call uh, Aristotelian uh, arguments from desire, from the uh, famous Aristotle quote that we have there on the screen, nature does nothing in vain. Uh, this way of putting the argument is suggested uh, by this quote from Lewis in the preface to Pilgrim's Regress. said, it appeared to me that if a man diligently followed this desire, the romantic joy desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared and then resoluting abandoning them, he must come at last to the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that's never fully given, kind of in this world, in our present mode of subjective and spatio-temporal experience. This desire was in the soul as siege perilous in Arthur's castle, the chair in which only one could sit. And, here's the key bit, if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit in the chair must exist. Now, Lewis's introduction to the Pilgrim's Regress suggests uh, a deductive argument based on the principle from Aristotle that nature makes nothing in vain, which I think uh, is most solidly interpreted as the idea that nature, nature makes no type of thing in vain. I mean, obviously, uh, it wasn't beyond uh, Aristotle to notice that not all acorns grow into trees, for example. Uh, so some things in nature exist in vain in that sense, but no type of thing. Um, if that's true, and we uh, combine that with the premise that humans have a natural or innate type of desire, joy, or these uh, existential desires in general that we're talking about, that would be vain unless some object not given in this present mode of existence is obtainable by uh, humans per se in some future mode of existence, then we can deductively draw the conclusion that the object of joy must exist and be obtainable in some future mode of human existence. Or we could put this in a sort of what I call a universal-ish principle way. Um, suppose some example or other were accepted as contradicting the universality of Aristotle's dictum, which is much doubted, but uh, as I argue in my debate with Basham, much, much harder to show is wrong than one might initially think. Still, suppose some example were accepted as contradicting its universality, we could still retain a deductive AFD by just adding in an exception clause. Somewhat as universal physical laws have built in certus uh, parabus, all things being equal, clauses. So we might state that nature makes no type of thing in vain 
except X, where X just stands for this concrete example of something that exists, some type of thing that exists in vain, and we might say anything sufficiently analogous to that. Uh, we could then argue that the innate human desires noted in the argument don't fall under that exception rule or uh, don't seem to be sufficiently analogous to it to be uh, worrisome and just place the burden of proof on the sceptic. Uh, or a restricted principle deductive argument from desire. Um, just use the restricted application of the Aristotelian dictum and just say nature makes no type of innate human desire in vain. There might be all sorts of other things in nature that exist in vain, but all we need for the argument to go through is that nature makes no type of innate human desire in vain, and then say humans have these innate desires that point to God, and therefore deductively conclude that God exists. Or, of course, you can very easily uh, transmogrify this into a, an inductive version of that sort of Aristotelian principle uh, you could just say the majority of natural types of things are not made in vain, and so on. Uh, our heuristic way of putting this, a recent uh, book on uh, Aristotle's thinking argued that this principle about nature not making things in vain was not a, a metaphysical or ontological principle, but was actually a heuristic uh, principle. Uh, and if so, we could interpret the Aristotelian way of putting this argument as follows, uh, that one, humans have a natural uh, innate desires that would be in vain if God doesn't exist. Two, that we should assume that no type of natural thing exists in vain until and unless we're shown otherwise. Heuristic principle deductively draw the conclusion that therefore we should assume that God exists until shown otherwise. And finally, a fifth way of putting uh, the argument from desire, what I call reductio arguments from desire. This is a sort of reductio to absurdum way of putting the arguments. Uh, and Lewis, again, in Mere Christianity this time, says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. And I've kind of highlighted that, the universe is a fraud idea. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Uh, he says that a man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world, he argues in uh, The Weight of Glory. It would be very odd f to find the universe that way. So Lewis contended that naturalism inevitably generates a disharmony between our hearts and nature. Uh, he's pointed the, to the same kind of uh, experiential reality that um, existentialist philosophers, like particularly Camus, pointed to. As Camus described this disjunct between the human heart and what nature can give in answer as his very definition of absurdity uh, in the myth of Sisyphus. Whereas the philosopher Geoffrey Gordon concludes, if the universe lacks purpose, he says... Man is a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he is immersed. It was the psychotherapist Viktor Frankl who described man as a being in search of meaning. Uh, Frankl was the founder of the psychological school of logotherapy. Um, this quote comes from his book Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. Or Abraham Maslow, uh, famous psychologist, 
uh, described what he called the will to meaning as an irreducible need and as man's primary concern. Uh, and some uh, psychologists from Czechoslovakia, whose name I won't uh, attempt to pronounce here, uh, say that the will to meaning is really a specific need not reducible to other needs and is in greater or smaller degree present in all human beings. Daniel Hill, uh, the University of Liverpool Christian philosopher, uh, says life has a purpose only if there is an explanation of it in terms of the purposes of an agent that brought life about. Belief in a creator and designer is essential then for anyone that thinks that life has a purpose, a given and innate purpose. Therefore, atheists must necessarily deny that life has a purpose in that sense, since no overall complete explanation of the existence of living things could be given in terms of the purposes of any set of non-divine uh, agents. So in Mere Christianity, Lewis famously observes that the desire that we have that other people conform themselves to the objective moral law, the desire we have ourselves to be innocent before that law, uh, before arguing that this transcendent law is, is rooted in God, uh, the moral argument that you discuss next week. The desire to fulfil moral duty is absurd on naturalism, one might argue, but fits very comfortably with theism. C.F. George Mavrode's famous 1986 essay, Religion and the Queerness of Morality. Or indeed, everything, including purpose, is objectively meaningless without there being objective value in existence. And in the final analysis, I think... I would argue, uh, as I do in my book, I wish I could believe in meaning, uh, that we must choose between the worldviews of theism and nihilism. Those are the uh, the ultimate choices available to us. Uh, I'm going to skip through uh, William Lane Craig uh, reading Nietzsche's The Parable of the, the Madman, uh, but I'm sure you're familiar with Nietzsche's Parable of the Madman, and if you're not, go onto YouTube and uh, type in Parable of the Madman William Lane Craig, and he will read it for you. Uh, so one can treat the reductio argument from absurdity as um, an auxiliary syllogism that defends the first premise of the inductive AFD. Uh, this is a sort of backup to the inductive argument where you could say either it's true that for um, instantiated kinds of being K with existential desires that are innate K, say human beings, it's consistent with the way the world is that a creature of that kind should at some time or other have at least most of those desires satisfied. That either that's true, or life is substantially absurd, at least for beings of that kind. Sort of a definition of the conditions of, of existential absurdity a la Camus. But secondly, life is not substantially absurd, at least not for beings of that kind. And I think I would defend that simply on the basis of a properly basic belief, a principle of credulity um, belief. And draw the conclusion that therefore it's true that for uh, beings of that kind with those desires it is consistent with the way the world is that a creature of that kind should at some time or other have at least most of those desires satisfied and then that leads you on into the inductive argument with a, ba with a, with a different backup. But you can also present it as an argument in its own uh, independent right. Uh, something like this say, one given an instantiated kind possessing existential desires innate to that kind, the existence of that kind would be absurd to the extent that it's impossible for any member of that kind to have their desires satisfied. Two, that humans are uh, such beings uh, with innate existential desires that are probably, at least, impossible to satisfy 
unless God exists. Uh, draw the conclusion from those two premises that therefore unless God exists, human existence is probably absurd, at least to a substantial extent. Add in four that however human existence is probably not absurd to any substantial extent. Again, I would just defend that on proper basicality kind of grounds and draw the conclusion that therefore f five God probably uh, exists. As I say, uh, premise four here I think is just uh, properly basic. Um, some may profess a willingness to pay the price of affirming nihilism to escape the argument, but that affirmation is neither an easy one to make nor to consistently sustain. And one way of pointing this out is um, a development of an argument that uh, Dr. Andy Bannister puts in his uh, uh, recent book, uh, which uh, you might call an, uh, an epistemological uh, reductio. Um, we could put it like this. Um, if we believe that naturalism is true, we must believe that naturalistic evolution, presumably, has equipped humans with various innate instincts and desires that exist in vain and that fail to map onto reality. That's kind of biting the nihilistic bullet here. But secondly, the belief that naturalistic evolution has equipped humans with these innate instincts and desires that are in vain, uh, if we reflect on that, we should really be led to doubt whether our conscious cognitive instincts and desires are at all trustworthy. If, if we can um, be a, a, so wrong as to think that nihilism is not true when it actually is, on the, the naturalist's view, um, then what else uh, might we not be wrong about, surely? Uh, so thirdly, if we were to doubt whether or not any of our conscious cognitive instincts and desires are trustworthy, we would be committing ourselves to a sort of cognitive scepticism from which it would just be ad hoc to accept belief in, say, the truth of naturalism or evolution. So fourthly, a belief in naturalism leads to a scepticism about naturalism. And fifthly, we shouldn't surely accept any belief that leads to scepticism about itself because it's self-defeating. And so, therefore, six, we shouldn't believe that naturalism is true. And you can see where that leads from there. Uh, Batam, in, in our debate, was very keen to push me on uh, how strong an argument I thought the argument from Desire was. And I've been thinking about this, and I found this nice sort of uh, chart of levels of sort of uh, levels of proof, uh, in inverted commas, uh, to think about from no evidence all the way up to the uh, the legal beyond a reasonable doubt and of course beyond that uh, self-contradictory to doubt uh, in philosophical sort of logical mathematical terms um, I would say that's uh, on the side of caution because it's always good to uh, to um, over deliver than under deliver as it were um, that at least each of these ways of putting the argument from desire has what you might call a scintilla of evidential value to it, at least. Okay. And thus, since we have a cumulative case of many different ways of putting this argument from uh, many different sort of points of view, talking about different uh, um, existential desires as well, um, joy and the others that we've mentioned, I think combining them must at least move the argument forward to the level of a reasonable suspicion on our part that there is uh, something uh, beyond the world that uh, answers these desires and uh, that if God is a necessary precondition of those desires being answered, uh, that we have a reasonable suspicion that uh, God exists. 
So that would be an, at least a sort of worst case scenario as far as I'm concerned on these arguments. The argument from desire is most closely related to theistic arguments from axiology, like we mentioned the moral argument, the argument for meaning, purpose and so on, objective goodness and beauty. And on the kind of other slope of this experience, as Taylor points out, positive religious experience arguments as well would combine into a stronger cumulative case. And I think rhetorically the argument from desire is quite interesting in that not only do you get a cogent cumulative argument, uh, a number of different ways of putting the argument that might connect with different people, but also offers the apologist an opportunity to, to give people a wide range of ascetic experiences that might occasion the desire under discussion and thus motivate uh, people's searching uh, for God.